I want to start by acknowledging that uh, in Dharma teaching, there's really only so much we say, and we repeat ourselves a lot. You may have noticed that already. Now, basically, we're kind of saying variations of only about three things. Pay attention, mind and body, inner and outer, don't cling, and be kind. And you could kind of fit nearly everything we've said so far and are going to say somewhere in something like those three categories. And there's a great tradition of our forebears, ancestors in Asia of taking a long time to say not very much or spending a lot of time saying the same thing over and over again. So we're just upholding that tradition here and especially on a long retreat. And even the Buddha would say things like, Now and formally, all I teach is suffering and the end of suffering. Just, he said one thing, it's actually two things, but um, one thing of suffering and the end of suffering. So I'm saying that just because I'm going to expand on something that Brian introduced the other night in his talk on views and uh, sort of take that as the starting point and go into it a little more. In his talk the other night, he mentioned this concept of papancha which is usually translated or understood as discursive thought or stories we tell, proliferating thought. And I want to expand on that because it's such a common experience for us. His take, his way into it was talking about views. And I really see that views are kind of hardened papancha, you know, the papancha when it gets solidified. And what I want to talk tonight about is what you might call just everyday papancha, just this mind that doesn't shut up about everything, you know, the wandering mind, the discursive mind. And even if you'd never heard of this term before the other night, I'm sure you all nodded your head and said, yep, I know that one, I know that mind, because it is something that's very familiar to us, this tendency of the mind to run on and on and on, to obsess, to fantasize, to tell stories, to make up things, to ruminate. Um, It's often experienced as an ongoing commentary or narration on our lives as we're living it. You know that one? It's kind of like we're the star of our own movie and we star in it, we edit it, we direct it, we produce it, and then we critique it afterwards or didn't do that so well or needs more improvement in that area. You know, they did that better last time in their last role. It also reminds me of um, watching sports, which I don't do that much, but I've learned a thing or two and I'm not going to give any more revelations about the Super Bowl. Don't worry about that. Um, but in sports, what, I'm, what I see is they have what's called the play-by-play commentator. It's the person who just sort of says, oh, they're doing that, they're doing this. I don't know American football that well, but the ball's on the first and ten or something, you know, stuff like that. And then the color commentator, that's the one that brings in all the facts and the information and what this person did last time and what they're good at and what their history is. Recognize those two roles in your mind, you know, the one that's saying, oh, now she's getting a cup of tea. Oh, now I better go do my uh, work meditation. And then the one that says, oh, what kind of tea? Oh, I liked that tea last time. I had a really good sitting after that tea, so maybe I'll have that tea again this time. This is what we do, right? If we're really honest, a lot of it is just this nattering on about what's happening 
describing it, justifying it, narrating it to ourselves. So this word papancha, I love it. It's very onomatopoeic, onomatopoeic uh, which means it sounds like what it is. And it sounds Italian to me, like papancha, you know. It's a, and it's just got that sense of, you know, uplift to it. it and its root meaning is that. It's like expansion, um, uh, diffusion, manifoldness, spreading out, complication, or elaboration. It usually carries connotations of falsification and distortion. When we're in papancha, something that would be described as papancha, it's driven by desire and it has this, these qualities of being distorted, of not actually being really accurate. And if we're honest, as we sort of look at our process in meditation, it's where we spend a lot of our time. Excuse me, I just... So the Buddha talked about this actually quite often in the suttas, this tendency of mind, and saw it as um, really important to understand the nature of thoughts and how they create reality, and especially important in the teaching on anatta, or not-self, which we'll go into in some other uh, discourses in the, during the retreat. But you can see how through these kind of thoughts, we both create and strengthen the sense of self. This is really very fundamental. And papancha is seen to be the cause of many of our difficult mind states and external problem, said to be the cause of greed, views, pride, ignorance, and attachment to becoming, bawa, bawa tanha, of quarreling and slander and lying, and so all kinds of divisiveness, all forms of conflict, basically come out of papancha, of this mind that takes up these um, kinds of thinking and just runs with them and loses touch with reality. And certainly projections, identifications, and belief systems all can come out of this kind of thinking. So it's really helpful for us to recognize this type of thought because it can lead to a lot of suffering. So in our meditation, you've heard the instructions. As I said, these three simple kind of things, pay attention, don't cling, and be kind. What happens? A lot of the time we sit down and our mind goes everywhere. It goes back home, it goes to work, it goes to our favorite vacation spot, and wouldn't the beach be nicer right around now? And, you know, what about that relationship and that argument and that problem and that issue I have to resolve? Um, And all of the commenting and narrating that I just mentioned. This is what the mind can be filled with a lot of the time. And Joseph, when he talks about this kind of mind, says, imagine if all of our thoughts were actually, you know, coming out of loudspeakers, out of everyone's head. What a cacophony would be going on in this seemingly quiet meditation hall. It'd be crazy-making. And this is what we call the monkey mind or the restless mind, this mind that's just uh, leaping about from, from thing to thing. This kind of thinking is very different from reflection or investigation, which are actually helpful uses of our mental processes. So this is not a talk to say, you know, you shouldn't be thinking. 
thinking is a helpful, necessary functioning of the mind. But it's really to discern this kind or style of thinking and how it can be uh, problematic. What actually has happened for most of us, people that I talk to for sure, that this chatter in the mind has become so familiar and so habitual that most of the time we're not really even aware that it's happening. It's a constant companion. And it's only when we begin to meditate, or especially get deeper in meditation, that we start to see it for what it is, start to recognize it as another arising in the mind, and not a necessary component of our experience to help us get through the day. You know, if your mind has quietened down, you will have perhaps noticed that. And believe me, your mind is quieter than it was when you came on the retreat, what's that now, 12 days ago or however long. It mightn't seem that way, certainly at times, it might seem just as busy, but it's only because you've moved a little further away from the busyness of life and more in the retreat and your kind of baseline is shifting. But it is when the mind quietens down a bit in situations like this or when we're out in nature that we start to see the pervasiveness of this kind of thought and actually contract the impact that it has both on our physical being, but certainly where it tends to lead us to. So, uh, as I said, this is talked about in a number of suttas and there's variations on how the Buddha would explain this process. I just want to take one um, that's a very common one and it starts with contact contact at one of the six sense doors, feeling, feeling tone, perception, and then thinking out of the perception. These are all, it's a sort of a linear process. And then the perceptions and categories of papancha. And why this is important is to see that papancha is a development of thinking. Not all thinking is papancha, even though all papancha is thinking. So, To go through that again, contact, something arises at one of the six sense doors. Could be a memory, could be a sight, a sound, a taste, anything. We have a feeling about that, a response of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. We've been talking about that. Out of that, a perception arises. Now, perception is a... uh, it's a translation of the Pali word sanya, and it has a particular meaning in Buddhist understanding. It's the recognition or naming of an experience. So it has a very bare meaning. We use perception often in a kind of broader sense, but here it just means that singling out of something, oh, that's what that is. The, and the perception is based on contact and feeling, so it already has a flavor happening to it of the Vedana, uh, out of the pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. Perception is conditioned and subjective. The Vedana is too, but the Vedana arises pretty automatically. So does the Sanya, but it's getting another level along this process of being more personal, more conditioned, more subjective. Unfortunately, what happens is we don't usually recognize that. We think that what we perceive is the truth about whatever it is that we're perceiving. And that's where we start to get into trouble. 
We don't usually recognize that. And so whatever we're perceiving, we start thinking about it. We start, as Brian described it, telling stories about it. You know, so as I think I already mentioned, a thing might be, I need to go do my work meditation. And that could be just a thought that you act on, an intention is created, and off you go. But you could start a whole roller coaster of, you know, the interaction that happened yesterday and someone who you thought didn't do their job properly and what will you do when it happens today and a lot of emotions come up and you play out a whole scenario in your mind of what might happen and all of those emotions are up for you because of that uh, roller coaster of likes and dislikes and judgments and fantasies. We can go to the past, we can go to the future. The key in Papancha is that we're lost in that process. We're really identified with it. There's not a mindfulness of it. And as I'm sure you have known, seen for yourself, the mind has no shame as to what it will dwell upon and make up and obsess about and fill basically our hearts and minds with. It's actually endless, the kinds of places that it will go to. And out of this, this strong sense of self is created. And it could be one that's kind of uh, got energy to it and it's got some antsiness to it, or it can be one that's got a lot of shame or fear around it, but it's a solidification of self out of this, you know, um, jumping around into past and future. And I think Mark Twain was talking about Papancha when he said something like, I've lived a long life and seen a lot of hard times, most of which never happened. (laughs) You know, if you think of all of the disasters that you have imagined for yourself, you know, and they can happen, of course, but a lot, most of the time they don't, yet they've had an impact, right? You know, when when we're worrying about them, they're really uh, having an impact. So a yogi gave me a story, was telling me in an interview today, and I asked her permission if I could share it with you. She said yes, but just a great example of how the mind takes one thought that had some reality to it and goes spinning off. And she said she had a day of this, and this was just one example she told me. So she had the thought, oh, this is earthquake country. Well, that's true. California, you know. The other rest of the country has hurricanes and tornadoes and 10 feet of snow or whatever. We don't have that, but we do have earthquakes. So that's true. But from that, the mind just went spinning. What if there's an earthquake? Anything could be happening. I don't know what's happening. They haven't told us anything. How big a thing would have to happen before the teachers would tell us? How close, how far away, how many people? You know, what's the level? And so she was imagining, you know, getting an announcement, making an announcement, well, everyone who lives within 200 miles, you should call home because, you know, so it's the earthquake scenario. But then, you know, not just earthquakes, What's happening in the world? You know, all these things that were happening when you came on retreat. Believe me, nothing. The world is still pretty much the same as when you left it, but the mind fills a vacuum, right? What about North Korea? Maybe they went really crazy and dropped an atomic bomb. Or what about Russia? You know, did Putin go mad and invade, you know, Ukraine? Anything could happen. And so from that one thought, she started World War III. (laughs) And had the appropriate level of anxiety around that. Because in the space, you know, you don't know. Would the teachers tell you if World War III? Yes, we would tell you if World War III. So, 
You can put that aside. World War III hasn't started. <laughs> but you recognize that mind where you take one thought that has some truth, a perception, and you fill up the whole space with this uh, imagining. I actually think we do this a lot of the time. Just on retreat, you really notice it. We call it yogi mind, you know, where things get really exaggerated and the reactions to things get much stronger. So it's really important for us to look at that because it has an impact. You know, as this yogi said, this was really impactful. She had a sort of disturbed day because of these kind of thoughts that were happening. So perception is key to this process, this singling out and labeling things and having out of that a conditioned response. You know, it's not just uh, in isolation or an accurate rendition of what's happening. And you see this all the time in the media. I mean, people get paid for papancha, right? All the editorial pages and the blogs and Huffington Post and everything like that. And I'm not saying, you know, that it's all bad, but it really is the mind spinning out all of this, you know, potential theories about what might happen. These experts and specialists who, I think they've done studies where they said, especially economic specialists, experts, they're wrong half the time. You know, maybe they're right half the time, but they're wrong half the time too. No one ever calls them to account on that. They get called back in and, you know, asked to give their their views on things. And you just see it over and over again of this, this happening. You know, read a review of a movie and then go see the movie. And it's like, did we watch the same movie? You know, someone had a completely different perception of it than your perception. When people view the same experience, say you're outdoors in nature, in, in, in beautiful landscape, if you're a bird or all you see are birds or you're looking for birds or you see habitat for birds, if you're an artist, you're looking at, or a photographer, you know, where's the best uh, composition to take uh, an image of this thing? If you're out in a city, a town, and you're hungry, all you see are signs for food. If you want a bathroom, all you're doing is scouting. Where might one be? Our perception is colored by you know, the, the forces in the mind. And there's actually a, an example going on right now in the news. It's not news news, but it's in the news. I, I, when I thought about this, I don't, I don't think anyone will be affected by this, I can't imagine. Um, it's about Brian Williams who, if you know American news, he's like the anchor on the nightly news on NBC. He's one of the, I think his ratings are the highest, you know, most trusted journalist in America. He's Canadian, but that's a most trusted journalist in America. And he's, you know, he's a good journalist. He's, he, he, does a, he does a good job. But 12 years ago, when he was in Iraq, uh, he was embedded, as they said at that time, which meant he was put He was going out with the troops. He was in a helicopter convoy where the lead helicopter got shot at by small arms fire. And so the whole convoy had to land and was in some position of not safety. Over the years, so he told, reported that at the time. Over the years, this story has become exaggerated until he told it the other day at an event where he was actually honoring a soldier who was there at the time. Um, 
and, and helped protect him when they were on the ground after this whole thing happened. In the story that he told to, I think it was 18,000 people, he said he was in a helicopter that was shot down by RPGs, which are rocket-propelled grenades, like really big things. So it had gone to another helicopter just hit by small arms fire to his helicopter, hit by and, and forced down, and he was the center of this whole story. Well, unfortunately, in this age of the internet, this got repeated, and the people that were there, the soldiers that were there, were saying, uh-uh, didn't happen like that, and this has caused a huge storm where people are demanding his resignation, that he be fired, he's been suspended without pay for six months. So again, it's not like a news news thing, but it's uh, just a great story of Papancha in his mind, in the retelling of this, it had become fabricated, and he committed that sin that a journalist shouldn't commit of making up a story. So it's somewhat serious. But just to see how we do this, you know, we think, he, I'm sure he thought he was telling some version of the truth, and it just got distorted through this process of papancha, of proliferation. And so interesting to see the worldly wins, you know, the most trusted journalist, huge salary, and now he's been suspended. Some people think he should be fired. Basically, you could say, out of hubris, out of, out of propancha. The Buddha, in talking about this tendency of mind, made this really challenging statement. He said, in whatever way you conceive, it is ever other than that. In whatever way you conceive, and by conceive meaning concepts, thinking about things, it is ever other than that. This is pretty shocking, pretty challenging. Science is actually agreeing, you know, that our very observing of things changes it on, you know, perhaps on very subtle levels. Uh, it's, it's to me a bit like the story, it's in the suttas, it's probably in other traditions as well, where uh, blind people are, are, sh- are put in front of an elephant and asked to describe it. And it said that one grasped the trunk and said, oh, an elephant is like a snake. And one grasps the legs and says, oh, no, an elephant is like a tree. One grasps the tail and says, no, an elephant is like a broom. One feels the side and said, no, an elephant is like a wall. By this time, I think the elephant's quite annoyed, saying, none of you get what I am. But we do that all the time with our perceptions. We see someone, and by our perceptions of who they are, their color, their hair, their dress, where we see them, some projection about them, we make up assumptions and judgments, basically stories about this person, and solidify that into who they are. And this is the root of all kinds of judgment and prejudice and separation through this solidification of papancha, out of perception. The Talmud says, which is the, um, a Jewish book of wisdom, we don't see things as they are, we see things as we are. And as meditators, it's really one of the ways this practice can be so helpful. Can we be more with the truth of things rather than our assumptions and stories about things? Because as I said, can be the source of so much harm in the world, so much suffering when we make these judgments and assumptions out of our perceptions leading to papancha. 
So going through this sequence again, um, the f- in this outlined in the sutta where there's sense contact that leads to vedana, leads to feeling tone. Sense contact is basically automatic. It's a universal factor, meaning that it's always happening. If we're conscious, we're conscious of something. So something is arising at one of the six sense doors. And with that, with that arises the Vedana. It's not, it's not um, inherent in the object, as in this object is always that way, but it arises with the object out of our uh, relationship, or out of our conditioning, out of our sense of that. And then from that, it starts to color our perceptions, how we name and connect to that experience. And it gradually gets more personal and more conditioned. The conditioning starts to play a stronger role in this process. And then once we start to think about our perceptions, it can get even more personal and start to spin out of control. There's this great book um, called Concepts and Reality by Bhikkhu Nyanananda that is a lot about papancha and how it filters our experience. And what he says is, one who has been the subject of the thinking now becomes the hapless object. It's like we were you know, in relationship to this object and there was a sense of separation. But as we think about it, we get enmeshed in it, we get identified with it, and we lose that perspective. We're actually now um, part of the story rather than separated, realizing it's happening. Once the papancha, this kind of thinking, starts, we invest it with a certain authority just because of the mere fact that it's there, that we're thinking it. We're often, we, we identify with it and think that it must be true because we're thinking it or feeling it. Recognize that? This is the way things are. This is true about that person or this situation. And we're not actually often encouraged to question or look more closely at our thoughts and our feelings in this sense. Because we have them, they must be the truth. The Buddha begged to differ. He said that these, these, this type of thinking, I'm talking about papancha here, leads to difficult and unwholesome mind states. That papancha is very connected to, woven into, um, is the cause of, causes and is the uh, result of these three uh, unskillful ways of relating, of craving, tanha, of conceit, mana, all the forms of comparing, and views, ditti, that uh, Brian was talking about the other night. So papancha exacerbates or, or has a role in the manifestation of these ways that we basically cause our suffering through craving, through conceit, comparing, and through views. And so when we're not aware of this process, that's where we commonly end up, in wanting, not wanting, all the forms of, forms of aversion and craving, and the, 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 the thought, you know, this is mine, I, I own this, I want this. Even the aversion is included in that. All of the different uh, types of um, comparing or judging, of conceit, 
I'm like this, I'm not like this, I'm good, I'm bad, better than, worse than, even the same as. This is a a real source of suffering. And it's kind of very central to the story we tell about ourselves, of how, where we sort of stack up in, in in relationship to others. And then certainly into the holding on to views and opinions. The papancha really solidifies. This is the way I think about the world. This is the way the world is. Um, that my beliefs are the truth. So I want to clarify that not all thoughts are papancha, and really need to get clear about this when I'm saying you know that that, that this kind of thinking leads us into um, these unwholesome states. As, just to go through it again, the, the sequence is contact, feeling, Vedana, perception, Sanya, and then thinking as a separate category. And then that thinking leads to the perceptions and categories of Papancha. So we can just stop at thinking, which is the mental recognition of what's happening. Um, and it can be more than that, but not all forms of thinking are Papancha. You know, as I said before, I have to go do my work meditation. That thought is a helpful thought. If it's, you know, 7.30 and you need to do your work meditation, you need to have that thought to sort of get the impulse going. But it can then spin out into what happened yesterday and what you worried might happen today. But the actual thought is helpful. As I said before, different types of reflection or inquiry or investigation can use the thinking mind and be quite skillful. Insight can often come as a thought. It doesn't have to. It can come as a felt sense, a kind of aha, a knowing. Um, But we can often understand it through thought, and it can be quite useful. Metta, the practice of loving kindness, uses thoughts, uses words to help us connect to and cultivate that feeling of kindness, you know, thoughts of generosity, thoughts of compassion. These are all non-papancha kinds of thinking. And basically, whenever we're not lost in the story, not identified, there can be thinking that's not papancha. You can even do a lot of planning, and it doesn't have to go into papancha. A lot of planning is, but, you know, we need to clarify what needs to be done, you know, to prepare for this retreat. Every evening, the teachers, we meet and talk about what needs to be addressed and taken care of, thoughts and words really necessary in that process. So again, wanting to emphasize, not saying this to get any sense of thinking is bad or wrong, you shouldn't be thinking, but we just need to recognize when it spins out into that kind of of papancha. So, for example, if you want to do a project like paint your kitchen, you need to think about, you know, what color to choose. Hard not to do that without papancha, but there you go. You need to decide that. But the basics of it, you know, you make a list. I need paint and tape and brushes and rollers and the tray and the stick. And, you know, you need the stuff. And so you make that list. And you can do all that using the mental functioning um, in a skillful way. 
But we don't tend to stop there, do we? You know, we imagine the kitchen painted and how great it will look and I should have a dinner party and I'll invite my friends over and then they'll see what great choices I made and comment on how skillful I was and how <laughs> lovely it looks. And, you know, maybe you should be an interior decorator and maybe I should be an interior decorator. Maybe that's the career that I should have had. From this simple project of, you know, buying some paint at the hardware store. This is what we do with the, this kind of thinking. It just runs on, and at the end, there's this strong sense of self that's not a reality. You know, I'm not an interior decorator. I'd probably be a terrible interior decorator, whatever. So how do we work with this kind of thinking? First is obviously to recognize when it's happening. But there are some uh, supports too. One of the things the Buddha often talked about was what we call guarding the sense doors. Because a lot of this thinking, and again, I'm talking more about retreat practice, happens out of perceptions. The more we're kind of in everyone's business, oh, what are they doing now? And how much food are they taking? And gee, did you see the pile of laundry they brought down? And whatever it is that the mind, it's out of the perception of whatever that was. And then the mind spins out. So again, not, as it's not to be rigid about this, but just a sense that if there's a lot of going out through the sense doors, it's inevitable that things will get triggered. And some calming of that, that need to know everything that's going on. You know, who just walked in the door and what are they doing and where are they going? And I didn't see that person before and who, you know, who's, who's that? Just, you know, on re- often on retreat, many people like to practice in that way, where, this way where it's, you know, just seeing what you need to see, to sit in the dining room in a way that you're not observing everyone coming in the door and how much food they're taking. That's just a recipe for suffering because the mind will just riff off on that. So just to actually make decisions that support the quietening of the mind rather than the stirring up of the mind. The Buddha said in the the Sutta in the Majjhima about the source of Papancha, if nothing is found there, to delight in, welcome, and hold on to, this is the end of the underlying tendency to lust, aversion, views, doubts, conflicts, and all kinds of unwholesome states. When he says this, I don't think he's meaning that we shouldn't experience joy or delight. When he's saying delight in, it's this holding on to, it's this fixating on to objects as the source of our happiness or how we define ourselves. That's what he's pointing to as uh, problematic, trying to you know, bolster our sense of self, gain material possessions, whatever it is, it, through these external ways, that really is the source of suffering. When we try to control or manipulate experience or other people to satisfy our sense of self and how we take ourselves to be. So to be able to do this, our best ally, uh, the antidote, is our mindfulness, is actually tracking this process. And if the mindfulness is there, you can bring it in to seeing this happening. And we've said this before, as I said, we'll repeat ourselves. Thoughts have the power we choose to give them. If we don't see them, 
they run the show, there's the whole world, you know, solidified in front of us. You see a thought, it has the, it's like a wisp of fog, you know, the morning fog that dissipates, even lighter than that, like the, you know, blowing away a dandelion or something. So we don't have to be at the mercy or a victim of our thinking mind when it's spinning out in this direction. So all of the tools that we've uh, spoken about of naming the kind of thought, planning, remembering, fantasizing. Now you can use the note papancha, can be helpful. Or give a name to a whole construct, if it's one you find yourself in over and over again. Going home, seeing Melinda, um, the work project, whatever it is. If you notice that you're really spinning out a lot in that kind of thinking, sometimes a period of really continuous noting can be helpful where you just track, you know, in, out, lifting, touching, feeling, sensing. Not saying, you know, you have to do that all the time. If you get tight, it's not perhaps recommended. But it can be a way to really connect us to um, what's actually happening and break that tendency. And also to be aware, so a lot of this is about thinking, but thinking, as I've said, engenders mind states. It engenders these whole movements of craving and aversion. To also notice what are the mind states, the emotions that are being uh, created, cultivated by this kind of thinking. The, The craving, the wanting, the aversion, the desire, the fear, the anticipation. And then, of course, feeling that in the body. The more we're willing or interested in this, the more we notice it, the more we're likely to notice it next time. It just becomes another thing that the mind does that we can bring in to mindfulness. And so we all have, you know, our themes, our running uh, top ten selections that, you know, it's like the tape deck that you just can, that's an old reference, isn't it? You can put in CD, now MP3, whatever. You know, you put it on shuffle and you don't know what's, but just one of them is going to come up sooner or later. I saw this for myself. Um, uh, again, you know, sort of these repeat modes that happen. I, I don't know if I've said, you may have guessed, perhaps not. I'm not from here. I, I'm Australian, born in Australia, left there in 1980. So I lived for a year and a half in Asia and five years in England, been here since 1988, so a long time now, but short story. Um, But I go home to Australia every year pretty much to visit my family. And I used to notice this process that would happen. You know, I book my ticket, you know, to get a decent price. You have to book a fair way ahead. So I'd book the ticket and that would be done. But then as I would get closer to the time, you know, thoughts of Australia would start to come up. And so thoughts of Australia, thoughts of home, thoughts of family, thoughts of friends, thoughts of people I would see, situations. And of course, what do I do? I put myself in those situations, talking to those people. And you create a whole scenario, right, of me with those people. And especially, um, uh, this happened more uh, a while ago, I would, as I anticipated that, you know, it's not only me talking to them, I would imagine them and how they would see me. You know, I'm coming back, I've been away, and the question, am I different? Am I better? Am I worse? How are they? You know, and all of this comparing would go on. And of course, the first thing the mind would go to was the self-improvement project. 
or I'm going to Australia, maybe if I lost a bit of weight or got, got, you know, a little more in shape or bought some new clothes or, you know, I've been meditating for a while, maybe they'll notice that I'm wiser than I used to be. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, I'll be with my family and they won't trigger me in the way and I'll be more compassionate. So the person that I would see going to Australia was thinner, wiser and more compassionate than the person that ever actually went there. And so, you know, I started to notice that I was doing that. Year after year, this little program would start. I would never get particularly thinner, and I don't know about wiser or more compassionate. I mean, maybe a little bit, that might be age more than anything else. But I'd see this program start to run. And then finally, I told the story when I gave this, a variation of this talk one time. And ever since then, as soon as I start, because I'm going in, uh, when am I going? in March, in the end of March or April sometime. And I noticed that, oh, I'm going to Australia. Oh, and the, no point going there. You're, not, you know, you're gonna be who you're gonna be when you get to Australia. But it's that kind of thing, these tapes just play. But now I'm so aware of the tendency to do it and how it's basically just fantasy because my imaginings of the people I'll meet and the things I'll say and what they'll say never happens the way that I think they will. And it's really helpful to actually have that reflection for yourself. If you find yourself in these Papancha fantasies, how rarely they actually come true. Now in Papancha, it can of course lead us to the depths of doubts and aversions and fears, World War III, whatever, but it can also be very exuberant and, you know, this kind of excitability of the fantasy, just like my kind of Australia one. So I started to check out, especially retreat fantasies, because there's not really a limit, is there? You just that you can indulge as much as you feel like. On there's no kind of, hey, come back to Earth until you know mindfulness comes back in. I started to do um, a reckoning of how many of my retreat fantasies came true in the way I fantasized them <laughs> when I left retreat. Guess what my hit rate was for that. <laughs> my success rate. Uh, maybe you've heard before, because sometimes people will say 20%, 50%. I'm like, zero, <laughs> zero, none of them. I, you know, I didn't want to do the things I thought I wanted to do. I didn't want to have the things or eat the things or buy the things. Whatever it is you're imagining, you probably won't want to do it when you leave the retreat. I hate to tell you. So, but mainly to say, don't waste your time you know, <laughs> fantasizing about it. So we start to really track the process, you know, where we're spending our time, what we're putting in this mental energy into. Really helpful to see the pleasantness of those exuberant kind of papancha fantasies, because that's what the hook is. You know, the, the, the dread ones have their hook too. You know, it's like, I need to protect and defend, but how you think you're going to stop World War III? I don't think we can do much about that. It's not happening, but, you know, just how the mind will go on. So helpful to reflect, what are the hooks? What keeps you moving towards that particular kind of thinking? Someone I was speaking to in talking about this was really saw that it was the illusion of being in some kind of control. And it can be a lot about that. If or, you know, I worry enough ahead of time, I'll be able to prevent that disaster from happening or be able to manipulate the experience. And it's interesting, once you see that and see the illusion of it, that it's not true, it actually, again, can take some of 
the energy. You can't quite believe it as much as you used to if you really see that's uh, in there. And if you start to tune into the emotion that's actually underneath this, there might be some kind of exuberance in the thinking, but underlying that is some agitation, fear, anxiety, worry, whatever level, and basically a lack of trust or confidence in our ability to be with what's happening. So we project out into the future trying to manipulate or control that. I think James said, um, I think it was on this retreat, trust that mindfulness can meet any moment. Know, to really start to develop this confidence that we can know and be with what's happening. You know, fear is always a projection into the future. I'm here now, I can maybe be with this, but what? What about? What about? And so it tumbles forward. So this trust in our ability to be present and that mindfulness has uh, uh, this great power to allow us to be with whatever is happening, far greater than we actually give ourselves credit for, far greater than we realize. And to really look at the limitations that we put on ourselves when we are wanting to control things. Do we really know what's, what's the, for the best, you know, to ch- challenge our belief systems? And Brian said the other day, he said it a couple of times when he saw his mind getting tied around the way things are and how they should be. Do I want to be right or do I want to be free? You know, do I want to get into self-righteous indignation or have the mind let go, not cling, be spacious? Someone gave me some really good relationship advice the other, a while ago that I keep bearing in mind um, you know, because often in relationships there's these little power struggles of, you know, who's doing what. And, you know, just there were things like loading the dishwasher or, you know, washing the dog or, you know, helping the kids with their homework or whatever. And the advice was, whoever is doing it is doing it right. <laughs> and sometimes it can be challenging for us because we're like, <laughs> but to just accept that, that we don't have to be in control of everything and to have that trust in... Uh, in our partners, in our friends, in our family, and not that sense that we have to control and manipulate anything. If you notice that you've been in that kind of thinking, bring awareness to the body. Papancha is a mental process, but it's strong enough that it has usually an impact on the body. We can, you know, the heartbeat can become uh, stronger, you know, uh, more frequent. You can get tightness in various areas or constriction in the breath. Um, I often find for myself tension around the eyes, the center of the forehead, around the mouth or jaw. You know, for you, you'll have your own signs of um, the impact of this kind of thinking. And it's a lot around a sense of self. You know, we're going to talk more about this sense of self and how we create it. You, when you're really paying attention, it can actually be quite physical. You know, these thoughts of self and then this <laughs> rising up of a kind of energy. Oh yeah, that's me. Oh, oh, what do I, you know, how I am in the world. To feel it quite physically. 
And again, one of the reasons we've been encouraging you in this relaxation is in the relaxation, there can be a a subtle level, perhaps a deep level of letting go of that, of the tendency to papuncture or even the sense of self. Again, the third thing that I said we always talk about, kindness, to do this with compassion and kindness. This is what the mind does. We have trained our minds to think in this way. A culture kind of indoctrinates us into this kind of thinking. And it's, it has a real strength to it when it's not seen through. So just to um, acknowledge that and have some compassion around it. But as Ajahn Sumedho says about any experience we might have, we have to know papancha to know non-papancha or to know the end of papancha. So get curious about it. You know, where does the mind go? And when the mind is in the throes of that kind of thinking, how does it feel? How does it feel in the body, in the heart, in the mind? What are the kind of moods um, or emotions that are associated with that kind of thinking? So really an investigation using your mindfulness around it is helpful. Sometimes with this kind of thinking, we need the sword of wisdom that just says enough. Not now. You know, I'm just not going down that road, not getting on that train. And it can be quite strong, needs to be sometimes quite strong. So, you know, it just depends what's appropriate. But the more that we can understand that our perceptions and our moods and our responses are not objective truths, but part of some causal process. This will really uh, undercut this tendency to proliferation. And when I say that, I'm not denying, you know, this is truth with a capital T. I'm not denying the validity of our emotional life, not at all, that there's great joy and love and compassion and, you know, all of the range of our emotional life, you know, anger and everything. You know, there is a truth to it, but it's not the truth. And that's a distinction that we have to make again and again and again. And so as we grow in discernment in this way, just as James was speaking about last night, we can actually make uh, the wise choices of increasing the states of mind, the wholesome states that actually lead to benefit for self and other and both, and gradually decrease the tendency to get lost in the kinds of emotional uh, responses, reactivity that leads to suffering. And more, the more we do that and feel the benefit of that, the more we're likely to be able to do it again. At times we won't, we'll get lost, of course we will. But the willingness, the interest, this continuity of mindfulness that we keep talking about, when we wake up and know what's happening and see if we're caught in this way and make this wise choice, oh, this is papancha, you know, I'm lost in this, I'm confused, I'm identified. And so we learn to trust ourselves and our minds that the mind is something that can actually be an ally for us, a friend. We, we look for places that support that. We look for meditation retreats out in nature, you know, things of beauty, 
the kinds of friendships that support this kind of choice for ourselves. And when the mind finally quietens, it's such a relief. Again, not to make thinking bad or wrong, but when we're not in this obsessive kind of thinking, the possibility or the sensing into this is actually more of our true nature than that play-by-play and color commentator that's being our constant companion. This clarity, this openness, this aliveness that can come, we're actually more connected to what's happening. This commentary distances us a little bit. We're more connected. I liken it actually to a bit when the refrigerator stops humming, especially if you have a loud one and they go on for it. You forget about it, right? But then it stops. You're like, oh, thank you. When the mind lets go of the grip of this kind of thinking, really notice that. Appreciate that. The calm, the peace that's there. And we see that Papancha is not inevitable. We don't need it to live, to get by, that things can get done. We can take care of things without this running commentary and narration. And that actually the possibility of more clarity, more peace, more compassion, more wisdom is right here now in this mind and heart, always possible. As James said this morning from Pema Chodron, celebrate the awareness that knows Papancha. Because in the knowing of it, there's a possibility of freeing ourselves from that kind of thinking. I want to finish with the words of the Buddha translated by Thich Nhat Hanh from the Bhattakarata Sutta. I heard these words of the Buddha one time when the Lord was staying at the monastery in Jetta Grove in the town of Sravasti. He called all the monks to him and instructed them, monks. And the monks replied, we are here. The Blessed One taught, I will teach you what is meant by knowing a better way to live alone. Monks, please listen carefully. Blessed One, we are listening. The Buddha taught, Do not pursue the past. Do not lose yourself in the future. The past no longer is. The future has yet to come. Looking deeply at life as it is in the very here and now, the practitioner dwells in stability and freedom. We must be diligent today to wait until tomorrow is too late. Death comes unexpectedly. How can we bargain with it? The sage calls a person who knows how to dwell in mindfulness night and day, one who knows the better way to live alone. Let's just let the words drop into silence.
Thank you for your attention. Time now for some walking in the cool night air. Come back at nine o'clock to chant with Greg and the frogs. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.